very excited to bring you this chat today with Jennifer Compton. My first in-person interview in, it felt like a really long time. It goes in all kinds of crazy directions and I'm really excited for you to listen. Before I get into that, I want to let you know that I'm going to be on another upcoming episode of Slee Ricketts. I had a really, really good time the other day talking with Matthew again. We talked about John Ashbury, as you do, and about social media. Uh, at one point, I get really unnecessarily head up about an Instagram poet, um, not for any particularly good reason. And I'm, uh, I'm really hoping you enjoy that conversation. I, as I said, had a really, really good time. I'm hoping to follow up on that thread about Instagram poets on Poetry Says in a few weeks' time. I want to go back to an essay that I read back in 2018 in Rabbit Poetry Journal. Uh, hopefully get the author herself on here to talk to me about it. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack. I think I could do with a bit of help to shape my fairly ill-formed thoughts into something a bit more coherent around this topic, uh, rather than just getting randomly angry about it. Um Speaking of journals and reading or not reading journals, I've had quite a bit of feedback from the conversation that started when I interviewed Eleanor for episode 150. Eleanor and I talked about why she doesn't send poems out to poetry journals and Eleanor very honestly said, I don't send them out because I don't read the journals. And that sparked a conversation with another poet who got in touch to say, that when she does get published in Poetry Journal, she thinks of it as the poem getting buried. So a couple of people had some thoughts on that. I did get to hear from a poet and minister, Coleman Glenn, who often sends very beautiful feedback to Matthew on Slee Ricketts. And he did the same for me after listening to episode 150. Coleman said that he thinks it's true that a lot of journals don't actually get read much, but he says, I've found a few that I genuinely enjoy and look forward to reading whenever they arrive. He goes on to say, I've been writing poems for less than two years and I don't consider myself a poet, but I do want to share what I've written with people who will enjoy it. My primary audience for anything I write is almost always a non-poet community my family, or my extended church community, or my larger network of friends and acquaintances. The truth is most of the people I'm writing for probably don't care a whole lot about how well-crafted my poems are. They're interested in whether they're true, moving, funny, personal, uplifting, etc. But I do care about my poems as poems, so I try to share them beyond my immediate circle with people who might appreciate them, apart from a personal connection to me. For me, that means sending them to the journals that I actually enjoy reading, since they're likely to have readers whose tastes overlap with my own. I don't care about prestige. Well, I try not to care about prestige. I'm more interested in setting the poems free in an environment where there's a decent chance someone might find value in them. I love that very generous take from Coleman, and I encourage you to look Coleman up on Twitter, at Coleman Glenn. He has a very, very beautiful poem 
pinned on his Twitter timeline called Diagnosis. Uh, I would disagree with you, Coleman. You are a poet, so just live with it. Uh, I also got feedback from Adam Ford of episode 92. If you've listened to that episode, you'll remember that um, my cousin Bridget and I went on a bit of a quest to find Adam out in the Victorian countryside. And uh, Adam, you'll be happy to know that your book is still positioned in the very middle of the mantelpiece at Bridget's new house. Adam says, I loved what your friend said about not submitting because she doesn't read journals. If poetry is about connection, which I think it is, my experience has been the joy of validation and being selected. The connection that comes from any work with editors, pride of seeing it in place, and then the long permanent silence as my work with the poem ends and nothing further results. Very beautifully put, Adam. This is why I think you got a right to poets if you like their work, whether it's a poem in a journal or a book. Just find them, stalk them, and tell them that you like it. That's all we get, so take the time. Thank you to everybody who wrote in about that. It was really nice to have different um, perspectives coming in. Uh, really, really love to hear from you anytime. And now I get to introduce to you Jennifer Compton. Jennifer probably doesn't need any introduction. She has been writing and working as a poet in this country for many, many years. She describes herself in this episode as a playwright turned poet, but I suspect that she's still writing plays. I reckon she's still got a play kicking around there. I got to know Jen just over the last probably six months or so, really, when she invited me to be part of a poetry group where we read and give feedback on each other's work. That's something that I've never really had a proper opportunity to do before, and I'm finding it so, so valuable, even though I am an intermittent and relatively lazy member. Uh, I am really enjoying it. And we talk a bit about that at the start of this chat. This is my first opportunity to interview someone for Poetry Says in person in a really long time. I was texting my friend before I went into Jen's house and just saying so much of making this podcast is arriving at somebody's place early and sitting in my car <laughs> feeling nervous. <laughs> I did feel really nervous even though Jen is one of the warmest and loveliest people you'll ever meet in poetry or otherwise. So yeah I start off by just kind of talking to her about that you know how how does she maintain that position in amongst, you know, what I'm always struggling with is like creative jealousy that's constantly bubbling up. And then I ask her about this long poem that she published back in 1997 called Dear Les, which is a poem written to none other than Les Murray. I did not expect this to open up a Pandora's box of Australian poetry history, but Jen tells these incredible stories about she says forcing her friendship on Les Murray and at one point she says oh yeah the Sydney Poets Union sent us out on tour and I'm just like what does that is that a thing that used to happen it's completely crazy to me um we also get into oh we end up workshopping one of Jen's poems about halfway through uh we talk about the 
the issue of the best Australian poetry collections and um, there is a, a cat featuring in this episode because Jen was taking care of a friend's cat. That's the kind of thing that Jen does and just so you know all the meowing is a sign that the cat was finally happy enough to come out of its hiding place. So it's it's meowing to celebrate. And a couple of little mistakes in here. David Stavanger, of course, did not win the 2016 Newcastle Poetry Prize. That was, of course, John Watson. And Once We're Warriors was directed by Lee Tamahori. Just so that's on the record there. I really hope you enjoy this chat with Jen as much as I did. David Stavanger to enter his poem, The Electric Journal, into the Newcastle Poetry yep. Prize. Yep. Um, and that poem for me was one that really opened up a lot of possibilities. You know? Yeah, I thought it was fabulous. Yeah. I heard him read it at Canberra. Yeah. And I went up to him afterwards and said, That was like hearing Howl for the first time. You must um, enter it for the Newcastle. Send it to me so I can check out, you know, that. Because he was a bit of a performance poet. I wasn't actually sure that all the commas and the stanzas were right. Mm. So we spent like a couple of nights talking it through. And he's very receptive to all that sort of stuff. Uh, it got shortlisted for the Newcastle. It should have won. I thought it did win. No, it didn't win. Okay. Um, I one just of the, rewrote that bit of history. <laughs> one of the judges became second. Another judge was brought in at the last minute. Oh. And I think if the judge had sick that was Samuel Wagan Watson had been able to judge I, I think David's poem would have won okay huh well there you go um yeah I mean I guess the reason I start with that is that it's not it's not everybody that would take the time to do that kind of thing and I know that after I read at Alan Cat, which is where David also read the Electric Journal we kind of had this little bit of correspondence around the poem that I read and I just thought that was so lovely because it's so rare that somebody follows up with you after a reading and says, oh, I liked that poem and, you know, mm. whatever else. Um, yeah, we don't always have chances. But I'm so totally enamoured of poetry. If I hear something that's really good, I want to make sure it gets out into the world. Yeah, yeah. You're making me remember, you know... Um, the woman in England, her name was Peggy. Now, was it Peggy Glanville? I can't remember. She was a literary agent. And she had a ramshackle office and um, clients like Simon Callow. And she used to read all their work and rush and besiege theatres and saying, this is a wonderful play, you must do this play. And she'd <laughs> take them out to dinner and she'd arrange to get their shoes repaired. And... Um, <laughs> She was so in love with their work and their lives. And I was thinking, I'm a bit like that. I, I'm totally happy if I say to someone, oh, you know, this press is open. Why don't you send your manuscript? And their manuscript gets taken. Yeah. I'm thrilled to bits. I'm, I'm, I, it's meddling, <laughs> you know, <laughs> definitely meddling. But um, it fills me with joy to be a matchmaker. But I just don't think everybody's like that. That's kind of why I take 
take the why I'm taking the time to sort of out to highlight it because I think well look I'll just speak for myself I don't find it easy to do that kind of thing I am more of somebody who's like oh there's something open I want it I don't want you to know about it oh really <laughs> yes yes I suppose that's the thing <laughs> So it's just, it's great that there are, there are people out there like yourself. And also, you know, just recently, I, I don't know if the group that, that I'm in of yours has been running pre-lockdown. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. We would meet here or someone else's house okay. and we'd have soup and crusty bread and we'd all overcated. And I thought it would just close down. I didn't realise lockdown was going to be so long. But then Rose, beautiful Rose Lucas... Uh, she was Zooming because, you know, she teaches and so she had to learn to Zoom and she had a Zoom account. And I refused to learn to Zoom the first time. <laughs> but I think I was emotionally tired and when lockdown happened I was actually quite glad mm. because then I had perfect excuse not to go to my dearest friend's book launch, you know, because there's just so much on in Melbourne. There's you know, so you, much on. You're so exhausted by it. Yeah. But, of course, my opinion about lockdown changed reasonably quickly anyway I learnt to zoom yeah and um now we meet on zoom and I got to think well as we're zooming we can have anyone so now we've got someone from Perth you know and I don't want to go back to meeting in the flesh maybe we'll have like picnics for those of us or if someone's visiting maybe we'll meet up but personally you know the thought of um linking together splendid poets um and, and, and it seems to work on Zoom, I mean. Mm. Although the group is a, a collective, I, I like to imagine it as a 70s collective. Yeah. But of course there has to be someone who's a... takes charge a bit, you know. So, you know, I take charge a bit, um, which I, I like doing. <laughs> and um, I think I'll say yeah yeah if you want to start up a schism group you know where you meet in people's houses like we used to mm. you do that but I'm going to keep the zoom and if you want to go well I can think of 10 excellent poets I would love to invite wow but at the moment I want to keep it women which is very interesting that I do I was going to ask you about that yeah mm. women and women identifying people <sighs> so when you said that to me I was relieved and happy. Now why <laughs> but, is this? Yeah, exactly. Why is that? Why on earth would it matter to me if there were men in the group? Like that seems ridiculous when you say it out loud. And yet... In the secret heart. Yay, just the girls. No men allowed. Take your boy germs away. <laughs> Sometimes I'm tempted by a really good male poet. Right. But then I visualise them in the group and then I visualize how I would behave and it's my own fault no this is the thing right I wouldn't be able to to not be trying panda to, yeah trying to be impressive and cute and like whatever the hell else like yeah yeah it's just for the moment yeah, just until we all grow up <laughs> <laughs> just the just the women yeah yeah and, until and, we get over ourselves <laughs> yes and it is it's full of joy yeah and I like the fact it's a slightly bigger group. I had to talk a few members into it saying, yeah, yeah, let's have a lot of people. 
And then if you don't feel like going, you can just blow it off because you know there's plenty. Yeah. And, um, and, and each time, it's like six different people, so there's a completely different energy mix. Mm. And um, anyone who starts to go, oh, you know, I'm a bit bored of it, all right, you can fuck off. <laughs> there's three poets in Perth that I would like Waiting. to invite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, well, you, you've mentioned just before about the emotional exhaustion that comes with this kind of work sometimes. And I guess it's just, I think it's really worth acknowledging, you know, driving home the point that not everybody would do that. Not everybody wants to do that kind of work. Not everybody wants to be an organiser, an encourager, a butler. A bossy person. (laughs) (laughs) I say to one, come and he cometh, and say to one, go and he goeth. (laughs) All the power. (laughs) No, I I just love the way it matches. When I was... uh, uh, writer in residence in Palmerston North. I had a lovely three months there. Everyone pitied me mightily for spending three months in Palmerston North, but it was excellent. I mean, I had Wellington friends ringing up and saying, oh, you poor thing, come down for a weekend to Wellington. You know, no, it's fine. They're lovely in Palmerston North. They've got time to make friends. They haven't got enough friends, you mm-hmm. know. They're yeah. auditioning for more friends. I had an excellent time. Anyway, I started a little, as part of my brief of being the uh, visiting literary artist, um, and they gave me a nice flat in the centre of town in the arts centre, so I was right, you know, if, if Palmerston North has a thick of things, I was in the thick. Mm. And there was a nice little coffee bar around in Grey Street, and I asked the organisers if I could have a Tuesday poetry meeting. You know, anyone who wanted to come along could come and have a coffee and a cake and we'd exchange poems and just, you know. And um, they were a bit worried at first. They were imagining, like, performance poets and dungarees um, jumping up on tables and shouting poems, but I assured them it wouldn't be like that. <laughs> See, part of the brief, you had to do something for the community and some visiting literary artists, like, go to school. But I wanted something more informal. I think it was a Tuesday night. Anyway, word got out, and poets came out of the woodwork. We had quite a big group sometimes. I mean, I would just turn up with, you know, my books and just sit there and see if anyone else turned up, you know. That's amazing. But where, where is Palmerston North? Oh, um, about 200 kilometres north of Wellington. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why? And you found poets there. You've I made did. A, you've made a poem. Oh, a wonderful poet called Tim Upperton. Wonderful poet. Um, Lionel Alvarez. Jill. Oh, Jill. Jill unfortunately died. It was very sad. Um, we were chatting a lot on Facebook. And um, I saw her post one night. And I thought, oh, I've been talking to her a lot. She'll think I'm stalking her. I won't tonight. She died that night. So, oh my God. No, if I want to say something to someone, I just say it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, and Joanna Aitchison. Oh, she was a find. Um, and she came once and brought this... Ah, lovely poem, just lovely. And I knew that the New Zealand Poetry Society um, competition was open um, and Vivian Plum was judging, friend of mine, and I went, oh, Vivian, I like this poem. You send it, and Joanna did, and Vivian did, and it won first prize. So, oh, clever me! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Aima, you know, send the right thing to the right place. Yeah, yeah. This just obviously just comes very naturally to you. It's just 
Yeah, um, I love to do it. Yeah, I really, I, I don't want to go too far down that track because I'm here to talk about your your own work, and I specific want to talk about a specific poem. Yeah, but it isn't a new poem that I want to ask you about. It's it's from from a bit of a ways back, published in 1997. And forgive me if this is a poem that you've talked about forever and to death. It's your poem, Dear Les. Oh, Dear Les, I somehow knew you were going to. Um, <laughs> Have that you, was in uh, Cordite, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Have you spoken about this poem before? Never. Great. Okay, amazing. Um, so I'll, I'll give a tiny bit of my impression of what the poem is. It basically tracks the process of writing the poem in the poem. Um, and it's, to, it's an epistolary poem to Les Murray, who is Les Murray, you know, not the, <laughs> Not the soccer commentator. Not the soccer commentator. The giant long shadow over all of Australian poetry, Les Murray. Um, and it's, it's a long poem. In the poem, you're drinking wine, you're listening to Van Morrison. And that was the, one, the first time I read it, that was the thing that got me. Because who hasn't drunk wine and listened to Van Morrison and thought, I'm going to write a poem and it's going to be amazing. But the difference is you actually wrote it and it actually sounds like somebody listening to Van Morrison and drinking wine and writing. And it's incredible. And uh, it's also about Les Murray and just about the... His near-death experience. Yeah, his near-death experience, your near-death experience, and the fact that that links the both of you. You're linked not just as poets writing in Australia, but as people who've had that experience. Is um, it just... um? come out of his uh, two-week-long coma. I thought we were going to lose him. Mm. But I happened to ring the hospital just as they pulled the feeding tube out, which is in the poem, and I heard his his noise he made, and I knew he was alive. So when he got better, I rang him and said, I'm going to write a poem for you about exactly how I felt and what the experience was like. Mm. And um, I'm not going to have second thoughts or draft redraft it I usually I do but for this one it had to be what it was mm. so it was like an experiment I allowed myself to um, and I was amazed when I sold it quite quickly mm. um, I asked Les if he minded if I called it dear Les and he said no 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 that's all right that's all right <laughs> Baby, could I ask you to read a little bit of it? Yes. Um, Gosh, it's so long since I've even looked at it. Uh, I'm trying to remember who the editor at Cordite was when I sold it. Was it Peter Minter and Adrian Wiggins? I've just forgotten. <laughs> Don't feel free to read as, as much or as little as you, as you care to. <laughs> Dear Les, I think you ought to write a poem, Bush Poet at Death's Door. I wonder what Death's Door looks like. I've been there, in fact stepped through it, to be precise in an ambulance, stopped at the red lights next to Colburny Post Office, but I don't remember. What I'm sorry for is my mother heard them say, she's gone or we've lost her. Not nice for a mother to hear, but I was really ready to go. A history assignment on the Weimar Republic, you know how boring. 
the Weimar Republic was and probably still is. For my karma's sake, I spent years of my life writing a play about Hitler. Forgive my excess. I am loosed on a tide of red wine and Van Morrison. Poetic champions compose. He is a good guy, Van. I can forgive anything except boredom. Boredom kills. Keep meaning to say to you, phrase. Everything was burnt up on re-entry, as if you were a star or a piece of space junk falling back to Earth. Not quite slipped the surly bonds. Remember what happened when Reagan quoted that? The look on that mother and father's face as they watched their daughter explode in space. I saw a meteorite falling towards Barrow one night. I tucked. Much good that would do me. I am so glad. I hope you are as glad as I am that you are in postcard code 2429. Van is singing Motherless Child. I didn't bargain with God. I was quite firm about it. Do what you will with him and send him back. There was no shifting me on that point. I'd rather you came to my funeral than I came to yours. That's what it always comes down to, isn't it? Am I going to be holding Matt's hand as he dies, or is he going to be holding mine? I'm just going to get another glass of wine. <laughs> Perhaps this is a poem. I may slap it on the machine and press the save button. Poem of Thanksgiving. Now it is all going away because I am thinking of line length. Drink more piss, turn up That's my <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, so oh dear. Drink so more piss, turn up Yes, forget line length. <laughs> Not people die, but worlds die with them. Yevtushenko, excuse me, that just slipped out. Neil said, write a haiku for Les. And this poem has only 17 syllables, but I don't know which 17 are the ones that make kadang. But you are alive, and I don't care if you have lost your net and can't catch those poems anymore. Yes, that's right, we were talking about the butterfly net of um, Nabokov. You know, he used to catch butterflies in a net. Right. And Les said that he had a net and he caught poems in them. Don't care if you walk on your knees for the rest of your life, searching the dust for grains of wheat. Those helicopters landing with victims and survivors outside your window that you tried to wave away. Apparently he thought he was in an English documentary and the helicopters landing on the, you know, pad next to his ward room. He was vaguely aware of them and he tried to wave them away, brush them away. Mm. Oh, did you think you were in Vietnam? Or were they giant blowies? Were you still at death's door? What I can never be an Australian? You growled, they don't send helicopters for poets. When Channel 7 flew Matt the Voice out on Good Friday. Les, they do send helicopters for poets, but only if they're very, very good. Matt, Matt's my husband's a voice man. And, um... Jana Vent once desperately wanted Matt's voice uh, and she wanted it now. So they sent a helicopter to Mitticon. Oh my God. And I told Les because it was a joke. 
And he said, they don't send helicopters for poets. But they did. The helicopters will be landing in the calf paddock when you land the Elliot Ness. Now, what is the Elliot Ness? That must have been a private joke we had. I think it was when he won the Queen's Medal. You know, he he lived in, um, oh, it's not Tari, Buladila. Uh, no, not Buladila. Oh, I've forgotten, isn't it stupid? Anyway, they had a few acres, and one of them they called the calf paddock, and the reporters landed the helicopter in the calf paddock. This is all a bit obscure, this poem. <laughs> it's great, no, keep going. She threw the poem down on the desk in intensive care. She threw it down. Crouched on my end of the line, I heard you make a noise. I know your voice. It was dark and urgent. I could hear them running. Someone said, it's time. Every cell in my body stood up and screamed, I don't want to have to listen to you die. I nearly put the phone down, but I couldn't put the phone down. I thought they had slung you on the floor like they did to my big-chested father so they could jump off the bed to get his heart started, and it did. That was the first time he died. But I was being silly because... They don't do that anymore. Everyone knows that. It was a long time ago. I heard you cough. Someone said, cough, Mr. Murray. That's right, cough. You tried so hard to cough. You couldn't, you couldn't remember how to cough up those helicopters. Then you remembered. You coughed from a very long way away. And I cheered on the other end of the line. Good on you, let's cough up the feeding tube. It's all good pud from now on, a live miracle. What we truly want, we can have. Then we must let it live in the light of its own nature. And we kill it over again. I think I've been in for more wine. (laughs) 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 What a funny poem. I haven't looked at it for so long. I can't believe how much I am raving on. (laughs) This is all a letter you write and don't send. Because... So drunk, I wish everyone could sit in this room of mine and feel what I'm feeling, feel something like bliss. Can I publish this poem, Les? Can I? Can I? Oh, I think we might leave it. Sure, sure. I just, I just want to say, <laughs> these are the lines I, I also wanted to ask you about. Um, towards the end, you write, let's just forget you are a terrifyingly good poet. Let's just welcome you back into the tribe. Mm. Um Mm. So I guess I'm trying to link that to what I was saying earlier about being this presence who's who's very welcoming and encouraging of other poets. I feel like in those lines you're acknowledging the fact that, you know, Les was so huge that he couldn't help but be a little bit hated by some poets. Yeah, that's why I took a, I forced my friendship upon him. <laughs> Did you? Yes. <laughs> Oh, it was so funny. We were on tour. Uh, the Sydney Poets Union had sent four poets out to tour around Lismore and that. And we'd meet up with other poets somewhere. And one place, Les was supposed to come and meet meet us. And I think I'd met him the once before. And he used to take my work a lot and send me lovely letters. Um, you know, we, he was um, vaguely encouraging. And... Um, we had were selling T-shirts, merch. We had merch, mm. and I was just joking to Kit Kellen. You know, Kit. He runs yeah. fight. Yeah. yeah, he was one of the people on there. And I was just joking to, to to Kit. 
we've got small, medium, large and Les Murray. Just as Les walked in and of course he felt very hurt. (laughs) And he was going through a really bad time at that really bleak, dark, hardly able to move. I felt such pity for him, someone who's suffering so much. He didn't feel he could go up and talk to anyone. And everyone just stayed away from him. It was like when Margaret Whitlam came to the Playwrights Conference, no one sat with her at breakfast because she was too famous to have breakfast with. So I marched up and had breakfast with her and we had a lovely chat. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, I think, the situation. He'd become more and more isolated. I remember it was in Warhope. So the next day I got up early and left the motel. We didn't have mobile phones back in those days. Maybe a few people did. I didn't. And um, I went down and found a public phone and rang him. And I can't remember how I'd got his phone number. But anyway, I rang him and said I was very sorry about the silly joke I'd made. And um, I admired his work very much and um, stuff like that. And he responded to and I thought, and I've heard so many people say so many horrible things about him. You know, to my face, behind my back, I decided I would be his friend <laughs> and, and insist on being his friend. But he was a very good friend back to me. Yeah, wow. Yeah, you, you can get separated out, can't you? So many people so jealous dying of jealousy because when they die they won't be announced on the news (laughs) can I tell you a funny story that happened in Rome I was at the Rome flat for six months you know the poet's flat and that was the year that Australia was doing so well in the soccer world cup so I asked my friend Ricardo who's a professor of translation at Sapienza I kicked around a bit with him because I was lonely you know I said, do you want to come and watch a soccer match with me? Um, Australia's playing, was it South Korea? And I said, they won't win, they can't win, but I feel I have to show support. And he said, oh, well, yes, all right. He was an intellectual, you know, we don't follow the football, the calcio, you know. It's, that's not what Italian intellectuals do, but, you know. So we went to the scholar's room, which is right next door to what? was Berlusconi's townhouse, there was a guy with it outside. And by chance, eight or ten Australian supporters on their way to Berlin, I think, had been stranded in Rome. So they came to the scholars' room and they were wearing the flags and the face paint and they were doing Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. And Ricardo was uh, delighted with them. And... Um, and it was a wonderful match, if you remember, in the second half. There were two goals ahead, no. Anyway, they played. I don't know what happened to them in the first half. I thought, oh, well, they're going to get beaten. They're not very good. But something, I don't know, double shots of cocaine all right. I don't know. They came out <laughs> and played like champions. And I'm, usually, if you're two goals ahead, you just close the game down, you know, make it safe. Mm. But John Aloysius decided to go for the third goal and I'll never forget the sight of him running down the line thinking I'm going to get another goal. Uh, it wasn't cautious, it wasn't careful, it wasn't sophisticated, it, it, was, it wasn't um, calculated. 
it, it was um, giving everything, you know, it was just beautiful. And Ricardo and I were so excited. And then the Australian supporters started shouting, Les Murray, Les Murray, Les Murray. Because the SBS soccer reporter, uh, Les Murray, his real name was Laszlo something, he was Hungarian. You must know of him. Yeah, I do. Mr. Yeah. Soccer. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, what the Australian fans were missing was the roundup and the replay and the passion and the showing where the game had tipped. And okay. we were longing for that, but Ricardo, of course, did not know about the other Les Murray. And he looked at me in wild surmise. Australians are so cultured that when their team wins, they shout for their poet. Yes, they do. <laughs> We do, we shout for our poet. <laughs> well, it was, um, it was glorious. Ricardo and I went out and had a coffee and Ricardo was saying, so authentic, so sincere, not like our signorinas. And I should have corrected him to say, calling your football team big girls' blouses is, is a bit on the nose. On the nose. But Italy, you know, the land that feminism forgot. <laughs> That's incredible. I love that so much. I really didn't expect to be... I mean, I know that I brought up the poem Dear Les, but I did not expect um, to go quite so far down that rabbit hole, so thank you. Um, I, At the other end of the spectrum, I want to ask you about control in poetry. So a poem like Dear Les is intentionally uncontrolled, allowed to roam free. You said that you didn't, didn't redraft it showed it to Les and he was okay with it. And then yeah, he, he said yeah. I could publish it. Yeah. The, it's it's unlike a lot of your other work that oh, I've yeah. read. Um, the poem that I'm thinking of in particular is one called Law and Order, mm -hmm. which is a supremely controlled poem about being mugged. He wants to know my name. Yeah. It's a scary, scary poem. Um do you feel like control, is control a good word you think to apply to writing a poem like that or is it too? Well, dear Liz is very controlled, of course. Once you've made the decision and the parameters that you're not going to control it, you're controlling it more strongly right. than if you were controlling it. You're making me think when I went to drama school, we used to do a lot of mask work and you, you put your mask on your face, you look in the mirror and whoever you see in the mirror that is your character. Mm. And a lot of people, several girls, were very upset about losing control, allowing another being to control you. I absolutely fucking loved it. <laughs> but our teacher, very fine actor called Ian Mune, and I think he directed that Once Were Warriors, I think he did. Anyway, he's a big man in New Zealand, um, and he was fortunately our tutor. And he was talking about doing mask work in England. And um, one of the actors got down off, they were doing the class on stage, and it was in a theatre restaurant. One of the actors got down off the stage with his mask, run, picked up a chair, running through the, the restaurant, smashing tables, oh God. smashing things. And he rushed up to him and said, um, I think it might be time, you know, if... And the actor turned to him and said, no, no, it's fine. I'm completely under control. It's all good, <laughs> as he continued. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, so it's a bit, it's a bit like that. Yeah. I mean, that story is one of my like formative stories about how to lose control, mm. allow yourself to lose control, mm. perhaps even a mask, perhaps in the poem, Dialez, I'm wearing a mask, mm. uh, someone who truly cares for another poet, but perhaps I don't. Yeah. Wow, I never, yeah, I, I never thought of that. Oh, there's liars and liars and liars. <laughs> All right, here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my bonus questions because everything mm-hmm. I had planned is completely out the window. What, so we sort of started with a poem from, from a number of years ago and then um, Law and Order is a bit more of a recent poem. Has anything changed for you in terms of writing? Uh, is it is it taking up different spaces in your life over time? Is it something you've wanted to get away from at certain points and then come back to? You mean writing or do you mean poetry? I mean poetry, yeah. Mm. Well, as I've sort of aged out of writing for theatre, I've resorted to poetry. And um, what I particularly like about poetry is, you know, I, I wanted to be an actor actress we called it back in the day Mm. never quite worked for me too critical about um you know the ethics of a part or what the thrust of what a play was saying Mm. but it's wonderful for me to 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 be able to perform my own work and um do it exactly how i would like to do it without you know a director's intervention or a dramaturg's intervention um so, you know, in many ways I've sort of, oh, well, I seem to be able to do poetry. I'll, you know, give up on the rest. Right, right. You are an incredible reader. I mean, that's obvious just from the part of the poem that you read before. I mean, you, it sounded like you haven't looked at that for many, many years. You just picked it up and read it perfectly. Um, I saw you read at uh, Melbourne Spoken Word a poem called Love Is Not Love. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It's one of my favourites. And it just, it just really struck me there too. I don't know what your experience of reading in a space like that is because you have an ability to be quiet and to gain attention by kind of going, becoming smaller. That seems to be so un, so unusual and so not what the kind of the spoken word cadence is more kind of start, start medium and get huge. And it kind of just... Oh no, that that's a, just a trick of the trade. Yeah. If they're not listening to you, don't shout. Talk more quietly and more quietly until they listen to you. <laughs> well known. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't seem like. Yeah, it just really struck me watching that, watching you read that poem. Um, you could feel them drawing closer to you to listen. Yeah. It, it's such a wonderful feeling. It's a trouble with Zoom. You know, Zoom's great. But you're talking out into the void. You, you, there isn't that exchange of energies, yeah. which is just so addictive. Yeah. No, I'm feeling it right now. I'm like, this is so different. Um, would you like to read another poem? Maybe I can refocus myself with that. Could I read um, one I've just finished last night? I would love that. I'll just um, turn. I'll just have to get it up on my computer. I'm just finally happy with it last night. So. Um, How do you know when you're how do you know when that moment comes? Like, how do you know you're not going to change your mind later? That's always a possibility. Mm. Um, but... Uh, 
when it's lying quietly on the page. Mm. Last night, I was fiddling with two words, three words. It was all because of line length. The line wasn't long enough. If I read the poem, the line wouldn't matter, but I needed two more beats to make the line long enough. And I tried Her Night, I tried The Musical Night, I tried all sorts of things. But I eventually felt happy. And you know, you know how you feel happy. Um, uh, I've read this to a couple of people, you know, seeking their advice to um, understand. And um, one younger friend said, oh, so dated, you know. And I went, oh, um, yes, it does have that musty, slightly musty feel of um, um, a 30, 1930s male poet, English male poet, you know, a bit um, C. Day Lewis or Auden or something like that, you know, perhaps one of the more minor poem, poets, um, John Silken or somebody. Um, but then she agreed that this was how the poem wanted to be at this point in time, it was this iteration. So mm. just let it be what it wanted to be at this point in time. Mm. Because I was aware as I was working on it that it did have a slightly, um, that it said perhaps too much and that it was um, slightly musty. Um, and I tried redacting it. Um, you know what I mean by redacting? Yeah. Taking up most of it, just leaving. Mm. Yeah. Didn't want to, didn't want to. Anyway. This is the most, uh, this is so fresh, it's like a steaming, like a cow plop. Um, into sleep. A child, my, a child may murmur stories to drowse herself into sleep with her hands tucked under her chin. There may be a cat, it may be a black cat under the covers, purring long and low. There may be a stir in the atmosphere, an awakening stir, so the child turns to listen. It may be that some hovering presence speaks, and the cat stretches out and lays one paw upon the child's cheek. A woman might lie next to her husband, attending to his breath, the children likewise asleep in another room, and she might imagine extreme ballerina moves and almost feel as if her taut foot lifts her up into an arabesque. Without recourse to gravity, she leaps and she leaps and she leaps, landing on one arched toe again and again. And the old and the woman, and the woman rolls her slackening body over and sleeps. An old woman could fall like a stone down a well into a place where the dead announce themselves as dead. It could be that she no longer knows where that long-ago one with his several graces and his turned-up jeans lives until he strolls through the reach of night with a rueful smile as young as ever he was. Count the years. The old woman wakes to a reckoning if not now, then soon. Thank you for reading something so new. Yeah, I can definitely hear that Auden-esque mm. 
um, feeling in it. How do you feel about it now, reading it? I think I'll sell it. Great. Make me $50. I don't think it's tip-top. I struggled with it a long time. It it didn't quite um, open itself to me, but maybe the next one I write on the theme will um, come out more like a... You know the best poems, that they're, they're hardly in words. You know, they're just... It's hard to describe them. They just sort of arrive. Yes, that 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 they're not discursive. Mm. Um, but you know, you've got to write a lot of the other sort until you get the gift. It's true. It that does seem to be the deal. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for reading that. It's really really special to have totally new work shared with you like that. Did you see any gaucheries or um, oddnesses or words used that were too um, archaic or perhaps pretentious? Well, no. I mean, I was sort of looking for that because you said that you had that feedback that it was um, dated. Uh, I always notice when poets... in like transpose a word so you, I think you started the second to last I don't know if it's a stanza break there but you went straight to the old woman yeah so that's interesting and then there was right at the start there was one I mean it'll be on the recording but there was one little slip where it felt like you wanted to say something oh else, yes something that's else interesting out. isn't it yeah Let me so this, is, this is why like yeah I'm so glad that I'm um, it was Alan Wern actually who said to me like you know you have to read your work aloud to yourself you do do that don't you Alice and I was like uh, yeah sure I totally do yeah. and then I started doing it and realised that it was very useful oh yes um, and, 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 and particularly if there's an audience paying attention Charles mm. uh, murmur stories to drowse herself into sleep with her hands tucked under her chin yeah yeah, yeah it's alright it'll do I wonder where I'll sell it to. Um, so many um, journals are themed now, aren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rabbit wants poems about architecture, and um, Kodak wants poems about kin. Yep. I wish they didn't. You know, I just wish it was. You know, whatever you happen to be writing. <laughs> was it? Is that relatively new? That sort of. Leaning? It seems to be more and more and more. Mm. I mean, I remember noticing it maybe oh, 20 years ago. Someone would, oh, well, it's intriguing. They want a theme. Mm. You know, that's fun to do every now and again. Yeah, you're right, though. Now it's just all themed. If you get a no theme once a year, it's, like, very exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I started a thread on Facebook, and Kent McCartner, who's the editor of Cordite, because I'd been a bit naughty and um, referenced Kin. Kin skin, I said, you know, it's obvious who I was throwing off at. And he said, it's for funding. They, When you apply for funding, they want you to not say, oh, yeah, just a lot of poems that poets have been writing. <laughs> right, you have to say... Yes, you I'm have to put together a package. Right. with, And I think that's death to 
art, isn't it? That's really interesting. That actually brings me to something else I wanted to ask about Black Ink's best Australian poems that you've been in multiple times and I read. You said um, something very funny. You were like, I'm actually kind of annoyed if I don't get in. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> it stands to reason. I know you were joking. But, but we don't have that collection anymore. Yeah, well, Australian poets, poetry's doing it now. Right, okay. It's just been, um, it's all been chosen and um, by Alan Van Nieven and Toby Fitch and it's, um, they're having a event quite mm. soon, mm. A, a, a Zoom event. Now normally I'd just um, put my name down to go and see who got in because I didn't get in. <laughs> but they're charging for a Zoom event. Oh, okay. And I, hmm, hmm, hmm. Listeners, this is also the moment in the podcast where Alice Allen realises that she's not in that collection <laughs> either. <laughs> I can't feel my knees. Oh, that's okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> did you, you send some work in? I did. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, it's just sort of, it's not like really the best. It's just different flavours, you know. Do you think that Black Inks was occasionally the best? or How can it be? Yeah, pretty much every editorial in the front of those would always say, this isn't the best, this is just what I chose. So, yeah. Yeah. Some fine work poets have done recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows that. Yeah. You know, anyone who thinks that my poem must be the best, you know, is, I don't know. I don't see how they could be a poet and be so foolish. I don't think poets usually are foolish, are they? I'm not going to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) I usually think poets are quite knowing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Um, Another bonus question I have here is, so you obviously have brought and continue to bring so much energy and enthusiasm to the work that we're doing, you know, as poets in this country. What do you wish there there was more of? Money. You know, I I wish that they would pay a little more for a poem. If you did a reading, you know, it wasn't just like a token. Did you know I'm going to be on Hard Quiz in December? Oh my God. And my subject is Australian poetry. Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to watch. I hope I don't crash and burn. <laughs> and I was talking to the young man. He said, oh, you're going to really stretch me writing questions. I know nothing about you know, Australian poetry, nothing. And I said, oh, well, you've read The Man from Snowy River, haven't you? Oh, yes, he said. I said, well, that's poetry. Yeah. Um, it's as if... It's like Cassandra poetry. There it is in plain sight, you know, telling the truth. No one will listen, no one can see her. Everyone walks right through her, right past her. I will wrap it up because I've kept you for a long time. That's all right. But, um, I'm slamming in New Zealand tonight on Zoom and I haven't decided what poems to do. Ooh. I never get through the first round. You know, they just don't vote for me. In a slam, it's all pity votes, if you know what I mean. What are you tossing up between to read? Um, 
Well, the thing is, it's going to be available, so I'm not going to give them a virgin poem. Okay. Um, I don't know, I'll just do something at random, because mm. I'm not going to get through. Um, hmm. Now this is, um, oh, podcast, podcast. I deverginated into sleep. When, when is the podcast going out? Um, Tuesday, probably. Ah. Assuming mm. I can get it together by then. Mm. Any, any requests? Um, well, I did mention Love is Not Love and I also mentioned Law and Order. Okay. So either of those would be beautiful. Oh, see if I can find Love is Not Love now. Oh, that was on Barefoot. That's right. You know where the title Love is Not Love comes from, don't you? No. It's a Shakespearean sonnet. Let me not to the marriage of true minds and mid impediments. Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds, or bends with a remover to remove. No, no, it is an ever-fixed mark. So, here we go. Love is not love. It was never love, not love. It was what the Italians called the thunderbolt. We stared, we exchanged eyes. It was easy, not what we might have wanted, not what we had planned. Many things were snatched away like thistledown in the high and gusty winds of our hometown. Many things arrived like the burden of a new language, as if the kaleidoscope had been given a vigorous shake and fallen into a new pattern, and then broken. We shuddered and woke. I saw fear in his eyes, but we stepped forward. We took hands, just like lovers do. The ceremony wound up with the pragmatic certainty of a dream. The children stirred and it was nearly time. The words we said shook us to the bone. Who knew that words could be so precise? that we would mean exactly what we said or that we would misunderstand so much. Be lost forever and yet suddenly be home. The man and woman staring past each other in the street, angry and miserable while sharing the exact same thought. We were given the years, then they were taken from us. We arched an eyebrow each, the windward side of bitter, like two trees growing too close together to be separated, root and branch entangled until one of us should die. We could not grow closer to each other, but grew away, flourishing on the far side. If it was like music, it was like the music at the concert, do you remember? Where we found ourselves without design and the high, clear pulse of your thought examining the invisible vibration became all of the music for me. With you, I am alone. 